when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, there'll be a resurrection and a call to the responsible living, and they will be called to judgment. Having been raised and judged, and having then been made immortal, Elijah will then be sent to the Jews living in the land, we believe. He will teach them and warn them through his work of preaching from the word, a, a, a convert will happen, a conversion will happen, uh, and a remnant will be in the land. Believe that after this, Israel will be attacked. We've considered that in, in some detail already this afternoon. They'll be brought to their knees by an invader from the north. And this isn't some sort of five-minute attack. This is a time of trouble such as never was. Two-thirds of the Jews in the land will die, it seems. Half of the city of Jerusalem will be dispersed. And of course, God is going to act. There'll be an almighty reaction. The Lord Jesus will be sent with the saints to conquer that northern invader, Gog, and that confederacy, and save Israel. Using the elements, we'll see an earthquake big enough to split the Mount of Olives. Winds, storms tearing up man's rubbish. Fire, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And whilst this judgment will be on Gog, it will affect everyone. The land will be utterly purged. And the remnant in Jerusalem will be holding on, desperate for that end to come, desperate for deliverance. They'll be looking for the promised Messiah. And indeed, he'll come. The Lord Jesus will reveal himself to those Jews who will look on him they've pierced and mourn. They will recognize him as their true Messiah. And with the king now in Jerusalem, a huge clear-up job is needed to start establishing the kingdom in the land. Much work needs to be done. And the land of Israel will be revitalized. Over time, it will become something absolutely stunning. The topographical changes will mean water is flowing through the land to bring life to the desert places. As described in Isaiah 35. With the work going on in the land, and no doubt the temple now being built in Jerusalem, Elijah, with others too, we believe, will be sent to gather the Jews who live outside of the land. The upheaval of Armageddon, including huge earthquakes, winds, ferocious fires, will have made a wilderness of much of the earth. But over time, Elijah will lead those Jews like refugees, eventually bring them to the borders of the land, going through a kind of national baptism as Israel did when they went through the Red Sea. They'll be brought into the land from the north, retracing the steps of Abraham, from the south, retracing the steps of Moses from Egypt. And there are many passages describing this, described very often as like the journey they took out of Egypt. And eventually they will come to a transformed land. So we've seen this idea here now, and we're going to develop this as we go through our talk, that Elijah, yes, we believe there is a work to be done in the land, and there's a work to be done to the Jews beyond the land. We're saying that eventually he will bring those Jews into a transformed land. Now, those of us who've been to Israel, since they have been in the land since 1948, will have seen great changes in that land as they've managed to change so much of what was wilderness into beautiful places. But with the Lord Jesus Christ in control, that transformation that's going to happen there will be incredible. That the Jews coming in will see the immense contrast between the wilderness which they've travelled through and the beauty and wonder of the kingdom territory. And those Jews, too, will come and meet their Messiah. And the benefit to the Gentiles will be enormous. Zechariah 8, 
says, doesn't it? Ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even take hold of the skirt of him that's a Jew, saying, we will go with you. We've heard that God is with you. It's Romans 11 that just puts it so helpfully. If the fall of the Jews be the riches of the world, it was obviously when the Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ that the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles. The diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles. How much more their fullness when Israel is back in the land, when the Jews are responding to the gospel, the blessings that will flow to all nations are wonderful. So having said what we're going to say, we'll now get on to trying to say it. We'll try to explain in a bit more detail the, the, the answer to this question. How is it that Israel will turn? And hopefully we've grasped already there are two aspects that we're going to look at. The Jews in the land and those outside the land. And for both aspects, it seems when studying this, when looking at the change in heart that Israel will have, we see Elijah is central to the turning. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Elijah will restore all things. Let's go to Malachi chapter 4. Now, this is one of the most crucial passages in understanding that Elijah will come, when he'll come, and what his mission is. So here in Malachi 4, it says in verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, even the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I'd like to note from verse six that God clearly says Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we're confident that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is speaking of the events of Armageddon huge national judgment in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And the passage also makes clear, doesn't it? Look at the end of verse six, that Elijah's teaching will avert a curse. So in other words, if Elijah didn't come, then God would smite the earth with a curse. But Elijah's teaching averts that curse. Now, clearly, Armageddon will be a curse. It's described as such, and I've put that on the screen for you, in Zechariah 14 and verse 11. Brother Matt's already taken us there. But that's that same word, that word curse, utter destruction. That's the word that's there. So Elijah's teaching, it certainly doesn't avert that curse. So the question is, if it's not Armageddon, what curse does Elijah's teaching avert? Well, the word curse is translated elsewhere as utterly destroyed. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, as the first king of Israel, and I think that's significant, as the first king of Israel, he was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites, He's told to completely get rid of them, to, to curse, as it were, to utterly destroy. It's, it's translated there. So what I suggest is that as the Lord Jesus Christ sets up the kingdom in the land, the land would need to be utterly destroyed by him if there was no faith. If Elijah's teaching hadn't turned a remnant. Think of that time, earthquake, wind and fire, Armageddon, Gog being defeated, the land being torn apart. The Lord coming as a refiner's fire. And that destruction will be necessary to purge the land before the setting up of the kingdom. However, because of Elijah's teaching, the Lord Jesus returns to Jerusalem as a savior to that faithful remnant. Now, that idea, I believe, is backed up in Romans chapter 9, when citing from Isaiah 1. It says, a remnant shall be saved. Okay, there's going to be a remnant who will be saved. Except the Lord of Sabaoth, 
had left us a seed. And when that's used in Isaiah, it's the word remnant. Okay, But here he uses the word seed. We'll, we'll get onto that in a moment. Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a remnant, a seed. We had been as Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been utterly, utterly destroyed. That's what would have happened. The curse would have happened. But that hasn't happened because Elijah was sent and a remnant was turned, we believe. And we do think it's significant that the apostle, inspired, of course, changes the word from remnant, which is used in Isaiah 1, to seed. Because he's just, in just a few verses earlier in the chapter, said the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Of course, the children of the promise are those who have faith. That is the argument in Romans. So Elijah's teaching is why there is a remnant, why there is this seed, why there are children of promise there who've responded to the word, to his preaching, and repented. And Brother Matt, it's shown to us, isn't it, that there are people in Israel today, those on the West Bank area, many of which are absolute students of the Bible, wanting to, to get it right. And we believe that with Elijah there, they even leave a seat at their table for Elijah when he comes and teaches them from the word, from the Old Testament, he will be able to demonstrate to them that they've got it wrong. And he'll be able to help them to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that they should be looking for. Elijah's teaching, we say, is why there is this remnant. Those who have responded to the word. Remember how the Lord Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, I think we can see this in Joel's prophecy too. So just leave a marker here in Malachi 4, because we will come back there in a moment, but come to Joel. So Joel chapter 2, we'd like to go in. Joel 2 and verse 10. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. Sun and the moon shall be dark. Stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. But the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Who can abide it? And there in Malachi 3, we get that reference, don't we? Who can abide the day of his coming? Who can abide it? And we see that the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, you see there in verse 11, you see the cross-reference we put back to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, speaking of this same event. Who can abide it? Verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Those who repent, those who turn their hearts, that's the answer to who may abide the day of his coming. Who can abide it? Those who turn their hearts. Look down to verse 31 of Joel 2. Speaking of the same thing, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And I hope you can see there the cross-references. I've put them on the screen to Romans 10. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And to Romans 9, the remnant shall be saved. Well, let's look back at Malachi chapter 4. I said, hold on to it if you could. Let's go back to Malachi 4. And I believe that verse 5 of Malachi 4 is implying that it's Elijah who will help the Jews to remember 
the law of Moses, verse four. So he commands them to, to remember the law of Moses and then says, I'm going to send you Elijah. It's almost as if to say the help for you to remember the law of Moses will be Elijah. He will help the Jews to get back into that word and to understand it properly. And I want you to note the connection of words from verse four of Malachi four to Leviticus 26 and verse 46. So I've put the connections in terms of just some colors there on the screen for you to see just how clearly that verse takes us back to Leviticus 26. And it's a helpful connection because the context in Leviticus 26 helps us to understand a crucial point that we need to make here. We believe that the remnant are those who come to accept that they are sinners in need of God's salvation. They will believe God's word as it is in truth and see how the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. But just make sure we've got that connection there to Leviticus 26, that saying, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, they need to accept that they are sinners. Then God will remember them. Remember the land, as he says there. This means that the judgments of Armageddon comes, which will, of course, be an enormous trial of faith. But we believe that there will be Jews in the land desperately holding on, looking in hope for their saviour, recognising now that they are sinners. They've turned in that sense and looking to the promised Messiah. We believe that's happened through the teaching of Elijah. Will you come to Isaiah 40 and we'll try to show this a bit more? This prophecy, Isaiah 40, must have two clear applications, possibly more. It certainly speaks about the role of John the Baptist, and we will consider that a bit more shortly. But this passage, Isaiah 40, must have a latter-day application too, because it parallels Isaiah 62. So I've put again that for us on the screen. And this is really important that we see this, that this passage must have a latter day application because of the parallel to the end of Isaiah 62. And wonderfully, that passage in Isaiah 62 then flows straight into, that's the final verses of Isaiah 62. It flows straight into chapter 63, which speaks about the salvation coming in the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. Who is this that comes? So Isaiah 62, the end, okay, behold, your salvation's coming. Behold, his reward is with him. And here it is. Who is this that comes from Eden with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his power, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save the Lord Jesus and the saints, the multitudinous Christ, making their way up. The rainbowed angel, we say, coming up to save the, the tents of Judah to come to Jerusalem to save that remnant. So having seen then that Isaiah 40 must have this latter-day application, let's see if we can get into this prophecy and have a think about it. Verse 1, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Firstly, just note the connection that's there to the reference that we've already highlighted in Leviticus 26. At this point in Isaiah 40, their iniquity hasn't been pardoned, yet they are to come into the new covenant. But, but, but crucially, They've accepted their iniquity. Uh, so just have a look at verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 2. Her iniquity is pardoned, okay? Or the, the, the revised version margin. Her punishment is accepted. And my margin even says for me, see Leviticus 26, 
and verse 43. That is so important, isn't it? Because that's the first point of faith. Romans teaches us that. We need to acknowledge the problem of sin, which helps us to acknowledge God's righteousness. And Israel will do the same. They're being prepared, we believe, to meet their Messiah, the manifestation of Yahweh. And so we see now in verse three, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we're picturing this in terms of the Jews in the land being told that somebody's going to come, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be and the saints coming up the highway, uh, going to come up to Jerusalem, to Judah. Every valley should be exalted. Every mountain and hill should be made low. The crooked should be made straight. The rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And we see from verse four, of course, we recognize that actually it can be speaking just in terms of a moral sense of those who are high being debased and those who are uh, humble being exalted. But but two, we believe that at that time there genuinely will be great changes in the land where the valleys will be exalted. The mountains will be made low. But here we see that they are clearly looking for the glory of the Lord to come along that way to come to Jerusalem. Well, it's no wonder, is it, that the Lord Jesus Christ's last words to the Jews in Jerusalem was this. I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord. They're looking for that time. The faithful remnant will be looking for their redeemer to come. and We believe they'll be looking to him because of the preaching of Elijah. And fundamentally, we believe that here in verse six, as it were, we've got his message. What shall I cry? Well, this is the key message to get across to those Jews. All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. He's teaching them, don't put your trust in yourselves. All flesh is as grass. Have the humility to, to accept the fact that we're flawed sinners who need God's salvation. Get back to what the word of God says. Look in faith to your redemption that will come. Verse nine. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion. I'm reading from the revised version here. O thou that tellest the good tidings to Zion. Get thee up to the high mountain. O thou that tellest to Jerusalem, good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Having heard that message and believed, but now in a time of great adversity, as the warfare is going to be going on at this time, Humanly speaking, they would realize that they're going to be wiped out entirely by this northern invader and its confederacy that's come against them. But the message to this remnant that's holding on is do not be afraid. Hold on. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come as a mighty one with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arm, gather them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And the passage we believe is speaking of Israel's deliverance when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to them. This picture of of the Lord Jesus as the shepherd with Israel is used in other Latter-day prophecies like Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37. Now, another key reason, and I think, again, this is worth circling, that we believe that this passage must have a latter-day application is just look at verse 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? And I want you to look in your margin and see where is that passage cited? It's cited in Romans 11 and verse 34, all about the restoration of Israel. And so you see why we say with confidence that this passage is speaking about 
future events. Of course, it has an application to John the Baptist, but it's speaking to about future events. Well, I recognize that looking at something like Isaiah 40 and seeing the application to John the Baptist may well cause some to question, has Elijah's work already been done by John the Baptist? And you'll see from the question sheet that that's a question that somebody has put to us. Well, there's no doubt that this passage is speaking about John the Baptist. So, so let's go to the Gospels and see if we can answer that question. Is John's work just a fulfillment of Elijah and there's nothing else to come? Come with me to Matthew chapter 17. So this is after the transfiguration, when, of course, Elijah and Moses were seen with the Lord Jesus in a vision of the kingdom. We read in Matthew 17 and verse 9 that as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged the disciples, saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. And so you see that what the Lord Jesus is saying is that is going to happen. But he makes an extra point here. Verse 12. But I say unto you that Elias has come already and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also, likewise shall also the son of man suffer them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. The, the extra point which I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is, is making to them here is that, that, that he's helping them to see how important the days are in which they're living. And John, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, was now dead. And sadly, that is what they would do to the Lord too. But I think that's all the, the, in terms of the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making, that it's not that John is Elijah, He's already confirmed in verse 10, or verse 11, sorry. Elijah will come and he will restore all things. Now, let's try to sort of build this argument. Come now to Luke chapter 1. And this passage is helpful because it makes really clear that John's role was a type of Elijah's role. So Elijah is going to go to the Jews before the Lord Jesus Christ comes to them. And John has, in type, did that role. So in Luke chapter 1, we read in verse 15, it is about John the Baptist. It says, John the Baptist will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn, to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him, the Lord Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people who are prepared for the Lord. Now, if we put these verses in parallel now with where they're being quoted from, in Malachi chapter four, this is one of those wonderful things in scripture, isn't it? Where the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. We believe it's all inspired. We're able to now understand what that passage is saying. So we now understand, don't we, that the disobedient are the children who are going to have their hearts turned to the wisdom of the just. We know, don't we, that the just shall live by faith. And so I feel with confidence you can say that the wisdom of the just is the fact that they have faith. They've turned to God in faith. That is the wisdom that the just will have because the just shall live by faith. So John's work then was a type of the work of Elijah the work that Elijah still has to do before the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. And it involves turning people's hearts to cultivate faith in them. Now, add to this that in John 1, and this is, again, something that you must take a reference of. In John 1, John the Baptist is asked 
outright, are you Elijah? So, I mean, this is going to be the definitive answer as to whether or not John the Baptist is Elijah. So John is asked, are you Elijah? And his answer is no. So we can say with certainty in answer to that question that John wasn't Elijah. Let's recap this point then. Malachi promises that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So we believe that Malachi goes to the land, that, sorry, that uh, Elijah goes before uh, Armageddon happens, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. After transfiguration, Jesus makes clear that Elijah will come. But he points out that John the Baptist was fulfilling the Elijah role, and yet they treated him badly. They killed him as they would do to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, we see that John's role was a type of Elijah's. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. By preaching from the word, he would help to generate faith in a remnant. And so they were prepared to meet the Lord Jesus. And we've added to that, that John the Baptist in John 1 and verse 21 says that he was not Elijah. Now, just as John the Baptist worked with others, he had disciples who were working with him. So too, we wouldn't be surprised if Elijah was working with others too. C come to Isaiah chapter 30. This is another passage we believe that helps to see, to see that teachers will be amongst the Jews in the land. And it makes sense that Elijah will be one of them because Malachi 4 has said, Elijah will be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So here in Isaiah 30, we read in verse 19, For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, so though you're going to go through terrible times, judgments, yet shall not thy teachers be removed. They won't not going to be hidden anymore. But thy ears shall hear thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind me saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it. When you turn to the right hand, and when you turn to the left. Now, when I am reading these passages, because, of course, Elijah is in my mind and thinking about this work that he seems to be given to be done, I can't help but see something like this and see how interesting. Verse 20. You will be given the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, but your teachers will not be hidden. There was a time in the prophets, the time in history, when the prophets were hidden and they were fed with bread and water and they were hidden by, can you remember who? Obadiah in the days of Elijah. I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by 50 in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And here in this passage about the Jews in Jerusalem, in the land, he's saying there's going to be a time when although you're going through absolute adversity, your teachers, they're not going to be hidden. They're going to be there and they're going to be guiding you and telling you the way to go. And there's real logic to this, because as the inspired apostle writes in Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Like, like the rest of the world, Israel has gone astray from God. Teachers are needed to guide Israel in the right way. And the importance of Elijah teaching from the word is consistent with everything that we know about God. He saves on the basis of faith. Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And that belief, that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Malachi said, Elijah would turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. We saw that being cited in Luke chapter one. And interestingly, that word turn in Luke one. So now that sort of Greek equivalent to that Hebrew word 
we now can follow that Greek word and we find it interesting that it's used in James 5, where James, having spoken about Elijah, James 5, there's not too many passages in the New Testament to be about Elijah, but having spoken about Elijah, James goes on to say, he which converts, and this is the same Greek word as turn, he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. But here's the point we want to make. The, the basis for saving souls is the word. That is how to save souls, to teach from the word. It's the word that being expounded to them can turn their hearts so that they acknowledge their sin, recognize that problem, accept their iniquity, was the phrase Leviticus 26, Isaiah 40, and look in faith to the one who will come, to the Redeemer, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come with the saints, to yes, defeat, go, bring about annihilation of them, save the tents of Judah. We've considered the moving scene given to us in Isaiah 40 of the Jews in the land holding on to those words of comfort that your God will come as a mighty one. We saw the Lord would be as a shepherd to his people, saving them from the jaws of defeat, from that beastly Gogian confederacy. Let's go now to Zechariah 12. We've been here already this evening or this afternoon. It feels this evening, doesn't it? It's got that dark and dingy feel in this place. Okay, It feels like we're in the middle of the night, but you're doing well, brothers and sisters. Keep on going. Zechariah 12. Read in verse 7. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. And Brother Matt gave us a really interesting thought there as to that idea of those being those on the West Bank, the inhabitants who would be willing to hear the word of God. They already are interested in it, see themselves as fulfillment of Bible prophecy, willing to listen, to acknowledge their sin to turn to their Messiah. So he'll save the tents of Judah first. And we have then a description of their genuine tears of repentance as they look to the Lord Jesus, their Messiah. It says in verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And the remainder of this chapter shows how genuine they are as each family mourns apart. It's not about just a, a kind of collective thing where, you know, that can happen, doesn't it? Where, you know, the people, someone's upset and the person next to them gets upset. And, upset and so you end up with sort of mass hysteria. This is not that. This is genuine repentance as each family apart mourns. What has happened? We can imagine the scene, having been instructed from the law, and now to see the love of God in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to rescue them. Those tents of Judah saved. They mourn seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And it will have been a time of immense trial that have met the Lord Jesus. They realize it's through him alone that they can have a true relationship with God. In terms of that trial, we read in Zechariah 13 and verse 9, this is where I kind of got my figures from earlier. I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, Yahweh, the Lord, is my God. You may remember that when Elijah was a mortal prophet, he turned the heart of the people at Carmel. And it was after that that the fire came down. So what I'm pointing out here is the order of events, as it were, that Elijah is looking to turn their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord came down. Then the judgments, as it were, came down. And then the people turned. And on their faces, they say, Yahweh, he is the God. Yahweh, he is the God. The very cry that the Israelites here are making in Zechariah 13 
and at the end of verse 9. And we don't have time now, but when studying this, and Brother Matt again has alluded to this, you'll come to see how that the Jews in the land, despite going through such difficult times, will at this time be empowered to fight against the enemy. Uh, two key references, and Brother Matt put on some more, but Zechariah 10, Micah 4, you'll see how that they will be able to go out and join in that battle against the enemy. Let's put our minds now, though, to thinking about Elijah's work with the Jews living around the world. So we've tried to consider so far what's going on. We've tried to answer a question about is Elijah uh, just is his work just been fulfilled in John the Baptist? We don't believe that is the case. But personally, we believe that there is this work that goes on with the Jews in the land. But certainly we believe there is a work. To, of a restoration to the Jews who are living all over the world and that they will start coming back to the land at this time. With the Lord Jesus in command in the land, it seems that Elijah will have this mission then to go out to the scattered Jews. Remember how the Lord Jesus said, Elijah will come and restore all things. So he believe that he has this role, yes, to the Jews in the land, but to the Jews beyond the land as well. And I've put there a whole host of passages, some of which we will be able to turn to about those latter day times when the Jews will be converted and come back to the land of Israel. Let's go to Ezekiel 20, one of those passages. Verse 33. Now, this is a passage which, as you're reading it, you'll realize this has not happened yet. This must be a Latter-day prophecy. Ezekiel 20 and verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. I will bring you out from the people and will gather you in out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness, the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. So we say this has not happened yet. Israel have not been brought into a wilderness and God plead with them face to face. And then they've been purged and the rebels been cast out and they're not being able to enter into the land. But that the faithful being able to go into the land by implication. The wilderness of the people in verse 35 or sometimes can be translated nations, I think is a metaphor for the world outside the land of Israel. They're going to be brought through the wilderness of the people. And like the exodus with Moses in charge of millions of people, Elijah will bring many, many Jews back to the land. Any rebels among them will be purged out and they'll be brought into the bond of the covenant. And the idea of the, the rebels being purged out, just, just look at verse 37. I will cause you to pass under the rod. You see in your margin a cross-reference to Leviticus 27 and verse 32, which is talking about the sacrifices and the, the sheep being going under the shepherd's rod and a tenth being taken, it speaks of at that time. So whether a tent would be dedicated to work in the temple, something like that has been suggested before. I think it's a nice idea, but certainly they'll be brought in. And those who are rebels, those who are clearly people who don't have faith, who, who are just sort of coming along, hoping that they can do well out of this, they will be purged. They won't be able to go into the land. But I think it's really crucial that we see at the end of verse 37 that they'll be bought, brought into the bond of the covenant. Uh, and a great cross-reference, which we'll turn to in relation to this, is Jeremiah 31. They're going to be brought into the bond of the covenant. 
Come to Jeremiah 31. And again, this is certainly latter day again. Read in verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant that we believe Ezekiel 20 and verse 37 would be speaking of. And Brother Matt has already alluded to this, and he pointed out to us, look in your margin against verse 31 and see and make sure you've got this circled. This passage is cited in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12, in relation to the Jews coming into the new covenant. Okay, so don't for a moment think that this could possibly be something, well, it's just already been fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled. This is still to come. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It says, not the law, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God and they shall be my people. And this chapter, lovely as it is, is a chapter that sees the return of the Jews who are living all over the world. Just look back to verse 8 and get a sense of their journey as they come back. You know, picture these Jews who are living anywhere in the world coming back to the land of Israel. And, and can we believe that will happen? Of course we can. Think of what's happened in the last 75 years of the Jews coming back to the land. Of course, we believe it's absolutely possible to imagine many, many Jews coming, recognizing that this is the place that they want to be, having heard the teaching of Elijah. So Jeremiah 31, verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind, the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. Will I lead them? I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the hours afar off, and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him, from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat, for wine, for oil, for the young of the flock and of the herd, and their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. What an amazing picture of them coming in. It's stunning. Verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears. For thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. There is hope for thy latter end, saith the Lord, and thy children shall come again to their own border. The children will come to the border. And we see they're humbled now, recognizing their sin, turned, surely, the work of Elijah. Look at this, verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastened as a calf, unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. After that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Surely, brothers and sisters, we're seeing the work of Elijah there, instructing them, teaching them, so that they turn to God, recognizing their sin, but looking to God as their saviour. So imagine those Jews coming to the borders of the land, wanting to come into that wonderful kingdom territory. Let's build up the picture a bit more. Come to Isaiah 11 this time. Isaiah 11, 
and verse 11. So this is a kingdom picture, isn't it? Isaiah 11, you know, it's a famous kingdom picture of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling in righteousness. Verse three, him being an ensign, verse 10. But read now in verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And we see a picture now of a, of a national baptism almost, like when Israel went through the Red Sea. Verse 15, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, shall smite it in the seven streams and make men to go over dry shod. So, so just like when the Israelites left Egypt and God piled up the waters and enabled them to go through the Red Sea dry shod, so too they're going to be able to do the same. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people that shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day when he came up out of the land of Egypt. And so we can picture them getting to that highway, picture them coming from the south up through Egypt, coming from the north down from Assyria, coming in to the land. And there's a highway now that stretches that whole, go. Isaiah 19 still tells us about that highway going right from there all the way down. And once they get now into the land, they come out of the wilderness, the nations, and they're able to now see this restored, beautiful land, be able to come into it. And we can picture them as they're going on that highway. Isaiah 35 tells us about that. The redeemed of the Lord coming up to Zion with songs and singing. So grateful for the redemption that's theirs. Come to Isaiah 27. And you see again, some of these ideas coming together. And Isaiah 27, once again, gives us a sense of that Ezekiel 20 point of there being a selection process. It says in Isaiah 27, verse 12, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the streams of Egypt and, and shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. You shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. So it seems that they're going to be gathered in. There's going to be a beating off. The rebels will be purged. It says in verse 13, it shall come to pass in that day, the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And so you see again this idea of them coming from the north uh, and from the south, coming into the land of Israel. And the same picture is painted us in Zechariah 10. I'd like us to go there. We've just got a couple more references to turn to. Zechariah chapter 10. And verse 10, and we just believe it's the same picture that we're being shown all the time. It says in verse 10, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, gather them out of Assyria. So we just got this sense, haven't we, of them coming from the south, coming from the north, coming into the land. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the, the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away and I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. And so again, we've got that same idea coming together. Well, the final passage I'd like us to turn to is Hosea 2. Let's go there together now. And this is... A stunning passage with so many other latter-day prophecies linking in. So I've put some cross-references on the screen. But I also think that there's a, a pointer back to a time in history again, just like we saw in Isaiah 30. And we pointed back to the days of Elijah. And it seems to me that Hosea 2 also gives us that pointer of thinking back to a time in history, to the days of Elijah. Come in with me to verse 12, Hosea 2 and verse 12. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me, 
and I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them up. And I just think it's interesting that the one person that we know in scripture who wanted the reward of vineyards was Ahab, the very king that Elijah had to battle with. And it was given to him by his lover, Jezebel. So these are my rewards, these vineyards that my lover has given me. We can't help but think of Jezebel and of Ahab. And interestingly, the word lovers in verse 12, the Hebrew is Ahab. So So we just can't help but be thinking of those times. But going on now, the passage speaks of Israel being turned in the future. We get a beautiful description, and I'd like to to read a a fair bit of this and then come back and try to open it up a bit. Hosea 2 and verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Ezekiel 20. Speak comfortably to her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. It shall be in that day that the Lord, saith the Lord, thou shalt call me Ishi, husband, shalt call me no more Baali, master. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of her mouth and they shall no more be remembered by their name. But in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the fowl of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. I will betroth thee unto me forever. It can only be latter day, can't it? I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, in love and kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to and it shall uh, come to pass in that day. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that have not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Well. Just looking back to verse 15, the valley of Achor is turned into a door of hope. And your margin will tell you that Achor means troubling. And I think it's interesting that Ahab accused Elijah of troubling Israel. But Elijah says to Ahab, no, I've not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. In that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Baalim. And look at verse 13. God is now visiting upon them those days, the days of Balaam. Your margin for speak comfortably in verse 14. I'm going to bring you into the wilderness and speak comfortably to you. The Hebrew there is to the heart. That's what to speak comfortably is. And remember that Elijah's work is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. It's the two words we saw in Isaiah 40 and verse one, speak comfortably to them, tell them that their iniquity is accomplished. We see from verse 15, it will be as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. It's an exodus in that way. And again, we've seen many, many of these passages referring back and saying it's like the days when they came up out of Egypt. This exodus where they came, left Egypt, left their land and came through the wilderness back to the promised land. That's what it's going to be like. And we think it's interesting, of course, that as Moses, yes, he led an exodus, but it was Moses and Elijah who were there with the Lord Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. And we know that they spoke to the Lord Jesus Christ about his exodus. And it's so interesting that two people that are going to lead exoduses, Moses already led one and Elijah still to lead one, would be the ones chosen to be there to speak to the Lord Jesus Christ about the exodus that he would lead. We realize too that the Gentiles are involved. We say that with confidence again, because in verse 18, we notice that the covenant involves 
the Gentiles. Why do I say the Gentiles? Well, the beasts, the field, the fowls of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground are the very things that Peter saw in a vision in Acts 10 and verse 12 when he was being told by God, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. The Gentiles are going to come in to the new covenant. And so we see that idea coming through there. And certainly, as we said already, we believe that this must be speaking of the new covenant because it's one that's based on faith and it's one that's going to last forever. And so we believe that Elijah will come and restore all things. May it be, brothers and sisters, that these things can spur us on. The hope of Israel is our hope. May we be amongst those who respond, Yahweh, he is God. If ever, and we've heard this exhortation be said today, if ever we are struggling in our lives, if ever our faith is low, look to the example of Israel. Look to them in history and see God's guiding hand. Look to their future and believe that the grace of God is sufficient for us. In the challenges of our lives, live by faith. Hold on. Believe that God is in control. And in terms of that faith, believe that faith can only come by hearing and hearing the word of God.